Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor John Henry, and this is the podcast of Zion and St. James Lutheran Parish in Martin County, Minnesota. What you're about to hear comes from our Friday morning Bible class. Currently, we're working our way through some of the core topics of the Bible, like, for example, the Trinity, the sacraments, justification, heaven and hell, the end of time, those kinds of topics. Episodes will be recorded every Friday in Bible class, and they'll be posted as soon as humanly possible with God's help and with minimal editing. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Um, unfortunately, the audio file, uh, the, the live recording of our Friday morning Bible study uh, for this particular Bible study, uh, the audio file was either corrupted or lost or wasn't recorded correctly. So what I'm going to have to do is in about 30 minutes, I just want to talk through the passages that we talked about at Bible study on this particular morning. And I want to do this just so, because we are going through the whole Old Testament, really, from beginning at Genesis, working our way through it, uh, observing how God has revealed himself uh, as the triune God, as the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and observing especially the unique way that God the Son has been revealing God, that uh, God the Son is kind of the agent of the revelation of the mystery of the Trinity, the agent of the revelation of the Father, just as it says in the New Testament, John, uh, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And again, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, it says, no one has ever seen God at any time, but God the Son has been making him known. So uh, that's what we're, what we're working on, looking at in the, in the Old Testament. And where we pick up with our study then is in Exodus. We've made our way all the way through the book of Genesis. We are in Exodus and uh, we're beginning with a passage that we've already touched on a little bit, but right at the beginning of Exodus in chapter 3, we begin with the story of Moses. Moses, of course, was uh, born as a Hebrew, but uh, due to very famous circumstances, was adopted into the family of the Pharaoh. And as an adult, he comes to, uh, he sees a Egyptian striking a Hebrew, kills the Egyptian, uh, comes to believe that everyone knows about this murder that he's committed. So he runs off into the wilderness, runs off to the land of Midian, where he meets a local girl, settle, Zipporah, settles down with her and uh, is working for his father-in-law. So Exodus chapter 3 begins. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Elsewhere, Horeb is called Sinai. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord has already appeared to us uh, in Genesis uh, already. So we are familiar with this person that is called the angel of the Lord or the Lord's angel or the Lord angel. And remember, angel, uh, the Hebrew word is could be better translated messenger. So Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place which you are standing on for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now notice what has happened here in this passage. We've started off, Moses, uh, it's, we start, as we start off, the figure that's in the bush, that's in the flame in the bush, is identified as the angel of the Lord, okay? And as we go on, then it says, God called to him out of the bush. And then, so the angel of the Lord is called God here. And then as Moses approaches, the angel of the Lord in the bush identifies himself as God. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So the God who was interacting with the patriarchs, the God who was talking to Abraham, the God who, uh, who made promises about Isaac, the God who appeared uh, in memorable ways to Jacob, that God is, the angel of the Lord is identifying himself as that God. And then there's another step that happens uh, in the same encounter, just a little bit later, um, as you go forward, you know, Moses is told that he is to go and tell Pharaoh that he is to let God's people go and that God is going to fulfill his promise and bring them into the promised land. And uh, Moses famously asks lots of questions and makes lots of excuses to avoid having to do this. In verse 13 of Exodus chapter 6, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3, in verse 13, it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So this is huge. Uh, this is God. This is the name by which God is formally identified and the name that is used in worship and in prophecy and in preaching and in, in hymnody and, and in the Psalms throughout the rest of the... It's actually used before, but it's used... This is... This is God's, this is the name when God says you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. 
he means in particular this name. Okay? You shall not use the name I am, which in Hebrew we would pronounce today Yahweh. You shall not misuse that name. That name is a kind of, you could say, a kind of a spiritual technology. It is a gift that God gives to people whereby people can call upon him uh, and call upon him in every need, pray, praise, and give thanks. Okay? I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Um, the, uh, at the time of Jesus and prior to that, and then going forward, uh, in some cases, even today, um, uh, the Jewish people will often not even say this name when it occurs in the written text of the Bible. So if they're reading the scriptures in the synagogue out loud, when they come to this name in one of the readings, in order to not even get close to taking it in vain, they will say instead, they'll simply just say the name. Instead of saying, instead of uttering the word Yahweh, they will instead say Hashem, which is Hebrew for the name. So this name is the sacred name of Yahweh that distinguishes him from all other gods and that proclaims him to be the source of all existence and being and the God who makes things come into being. Okay? Um, there's a lot we could say about this name, but the important thing at this point is to see that in this critical passage, as God is announcing his plan of salvation for the people of Israel who are in the who are in bondage in Egypt, he um, he uses he the angel of the Lord appears. This angel of the Lord is identified as God, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and most strongly as Yahweh. So there's really, it's very difficult to mistake that. And it's very hard to try to argue here that the angel of the Lord is something other than Yahweh. Um. At moving forward in, um, in the book of Exodus, uh, of course, the next things that happen are Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh continues to refuse to let the people of Israel go. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He hardens his own heart. God hardens his heart. That's a whole topic uh, we won't get into today. But the ten plagues happen. or And then... Um, <clears throat> the last of the ten plagues, which for the Egyptians is a terrible disaster, but for the uh, Israelites, the Hebrews in Egypt, becomes their national festival. I'm talking about the Passover that is in Exodus chapter, the institution of the Passover is in Exodus chapter 12. This is right before they are going to go out of Egypt. And... Um, so I'm just going to read a couple verses, a couple passages from Exodus chapter 12. This is the institution of the Passover. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. 
tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Skipping down to verse five, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which, you, in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Okay, so this is the institution of what is going to be an ongoing annual feast, uh, sort of a, it's sort of a Thanksgiving day, Independence Day, Easter, all rolled into one for the Old Testament people. It's the day in which it's the feast and the festival, which lasts more than just one day, in which they commemorate and celebrate and continue to participate in God's salvation of his people from Egypt. And at the center of this is in Egypt, when they're in Egypt, is the killing of the Passover lamb and the putting of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. Um, God goes on to say um, at, the, at the end of verse 11, it says, this, it, it is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you, when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so the blood on the doorpost is going to uh, keep the, those who are feasting and eating within the house, keep them safe from, uh, from the, the plague and the angel of death that is, coming upon, that is coming upon the whole land of Egypt. God says, this day shall be a memorial for you and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Um, and then, of course, continuing on, reading on into uh, Exodus chapter 12, um, we read how we read and see how how the Israelites did as God had said and were thus delivered from the Egyptians couple of important connections to uh, Christ in this passage. Um, this Passover, we do still celebrate this. Um, we celebrate, we celebrate, see what happened. Well, let's, let's, we'll start here. Um, let's think about the lamb first. John the Baptist in the Gospel of John uh, twice says when he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, And the Lamb 
that John is talking about is he is identifying Jesus with the Passover lamb. And uh, I mean, there are other things that might be in there as well, but the Passover lamb, the lamb, the lamb by which people are delivered from sin and death and the power of the devil, by which people are delivered from God's judgment and condemnation, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So um, <clears throat> the, this lamb is the, because, you know, the people of Israel, I mean, there were lots of sacrifices that happened throughout their year, their kind of liturgical year. There's lots of different sacrifices that happen, daily sacrifices, special sacrifices, sacrifices of animals, sacrifices of uh, produce, sacrifices of uh, cakes of bread, all this kind of stuff. Many of them, the ordinary Israelite would not even see. But this sacrifice, this lamb, was something that is designed in this festival, in this Passover uh, commemoration, is designed as something that every Israelite every, uh, every, uh, was supposed to see and participate in immediately in the, in, on the, during the Passover celebration. So this lamb is, a, is for the people the most regular, potent symbol of God's deliverance, okay? And John the Baptist points at Christ and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, another thing that's happening here is um, when Christ, you know, Christ uh, suffered and died and rose, in connection with the celebration of this Passover, this annual celebration, okay? It was during the Passover that Jesus suffered, died, and rose, okay? During this uh, festival that lasted more than one day. Um, and so it is it is in the celebration of this meal. God says, this shall be a memorial for you and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. It is during this feast, Jesus and his disciples are keeping this feast and festival, this commandment, when Jesus takes the bread and says, this is my body, takes the wine, the cup and says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. These, the cup and the bread are the cup and the bread that are used in this Passover festival. Um, and for that reason, you know, we didn't really stop celebrating the Passover. It just kind of got filled out and filled to overflowing by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and so, we celebrate, we celebrate God's just right about the same time of year. The calendar, the calculation is different. That's a whole other thing. But 
right about the same time of year that the Jews would be celebrating their Passover, Christians celebrate the, uh, Christ's victory over the powers of hell and darkness and sin and death in his atoning death and resurrection. And that we have a little celebration of that uh, every Sunday that we celebrate the Holy Communion, which is why in the Liturgy of Holy Communion we sing Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. The next couple of passages that I want to look at, um, the angel of the Lord comes back in to play as well as, well, let's go to, uh, I'm looking at Exodus 13. And now we are actually in the midst of the Exodus, the uh, Egyptians, Pharaoh, has uh, after the 10th plague and the death of the firstborn has um, told the Israelites to get out. So as they're leaving Egypt, um, just gonna focus on Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. And it says, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people of Israel. Okay, so just note that it says, the Lord is going before them by day, that the, 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 in the pillar of cloud and in the pillar of fire. So. This is what it says. The Lord, that is Yahweh, is in the pillar of cloud and, and the pillar of fire. And the pillar is the same thing. It's just during the day, it looks like cloud. At night, it looks like fire, or it is fire, okay? So now, so the people of Israel then, now I'm going into verse or chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. The people of Israel are getting, they come up to the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind one last time and sends the, sends the cavalry out to bring the children of Israel back into bondage. And they're at the Red Sea. They're sort of pinned against the Red Sea. And the whole crowd is there. And here's coming, here comes Pharaoh. And um, so just beginning at verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord after I have gotten glory over Pharaoh his chariots and his horsemen. So God says, okay, what are you crying for? Get going. And then after he says, get going, he says, you know, divide the sea. And then in verse 19, it says, the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, 
and there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So, we just heard the Lord was going in front of them in a pillar of cloud. We've also heard the angel of the Lord is the Lord. So look at this. There's two things that move, two persons, you could say. The angel of the Lord moves from in front of the children of Israel to behind them, and the pillar of cloud in which is the Lord move from before them and stands behind them. So what you have here then, okay, is you have of Moses hears a voice, a voice that says, go forward. You have the angel of the Lord, who we've kind of already made the case, is the Son of God. And then you have this Lord who is in this pillar of cloud and fire, which I'm going to say is a premonition of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit appears as fire, tongues of fire over the, over the apostles and the disciples who are gathered after Jesus's ascension. Okay, so what do you have here? On the banks of the, of the Red Sea, you have the Father as the voice, the Son manifesting as the angel of the Lord, the Holy Spirit in the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, Right here on the banks of the Red Sea, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just as you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit manifesting in Jesus's baptism. The Father, again, as a voice, the Son as, the, uh, as Jesus of Nazareth, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and the Holy Spirit descending in the way that a dove descends. So, and the New Testament picks up on this, that as the children of Israel go through the Red Sea, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that they are being baptized into Moses, into the cloud, into the sea. I mean, that's, this is Moses. They are being baptized and made into God's people. See, before they go into the Red Sea, they're really kind of a, well, they're a bunch of freed slaves, and they're kind of a ragtag band of, you know, refugees whose identity could be snuffed out at any minute by the Egyptians. After they get out of the Red Sea on the other side, their identity, they have a new, they are a new creation. They, here they are made definitively into God's people, being separated uh, from the multitude of evil so that they may serve his name uh, in righteousness and blessedness. Okay, so this Red Sea story uh, is, uh, you know, this is, this is, uh, I don't, I'm not saying it is the same thing as baptism, but it is a premonition and a type. I mean, we actually have the greater thing in baptism. But this, at the Red Sea, this Red Sea crossing, is a premonition and a type, uh, an image, a picture, a, um, a playing out beforehand 
of everything that we have in baptism. So, and so of course it is appropriate that Father, the voice, the Son as the angel of the Lord and the Holy Spirit in the pillar of cloud and fire are there um, sponsoring this baptism of the children of Israel and making them a new people and a new creation. Moving on to Exodus 23, I'm just going to look quickly at verse 20. God says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Okay, a couple of things. First of all, the placing of God's name in the angel. He's not saying that he, you know, takes a sharpie and writes his name on a little sticker and the angel gets to wear the sticker that says God's name on it. What God is doing, what is being proclaimed here is that this angel, the identity of this angel is the identity, the name of God, Yahweh. Okay. This is important. Keep track of this because this angel stays with them throughout their entire time in the wilderness. And this angel is the person who leads them into the promised land and by whose power they accomplish all of their victories. Or, you know, Jericho, uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that next time. Um, but this angel of the Lord... This is, he, is a, he is their constant companion on the way. Um, and then in the book of Judges, things change. So, spoiler alert. Uh, Exodus 33. This is a big chapter for this mystery of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Exodus 33. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is... But this is describing, um, well, okay. So this is describing the situation, the regular practice of the children of Israel. I'm just going to read it. It says, now this is when they're in the wilderness. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. So there's this kind of sacred ritual space that is identified by this tent. And then in verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak. With Moses, okay? So the pillar of cloud comes right up to the tent, and it says, Moses and the Lord, Yahweh, uh, speak. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So a very intimate encounter, and notice it says face to face. That's important because you now that face-to-face -face is in verse 11. 
in verse 18, the scene has, by verse 18 of chapter 33, the scene has changed a little bit. We're no longer talking about this tent of meeting situation, and you can go and read the whole chapter. But just note this, in verse 18, we're at a different time, different place, but Moses says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And then in verse 23, he says, or he, uh, God describes how he's going to do this, how he's going to walk by Moses and cover him while he walks by, and then Moses can see him passing and he can see his back. He says, I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, I would encourage you to actually go back and read the whole chapter 33, just so you can understand the context of what's going on. But the, what's important here, what's important for our understanding of who God is, how God reveals himself as the Holy Trinity in the Old Testament, it goes like this. In verse 11 of Exodus 33, it says, The Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. In verse 20, it says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And in verse 23, My face shall not be seen. So which is it? Is it that Moses... So we have here, you know, and this is all happening in the same chapter. And this would be, if we were inclined to point out contradictions in the Bible and make a big deal out of them, this would be a go-to place. It says Moses saw God face to face. It says God says Moses cannot see him face to face. This is not like a passage in the middle of Genesis seeming to contradict something like in the Gospel of Matthew where you could say, well, this was the Old Testament, now it's the New Testament. Both of these passages, these sentences, these verses, are in the same chapter of the same book. What's going on here? We remember that in the Gospel of John, it says no one has seen, the, this is John chapter 1, no one has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten of God, or the only begotten God, I'm sorry, has been making him known. What is happening here in Exodus 3 is you have more than one person who is God, who is Yahweh. There is a person of Yahweh who can be seen, and there is a person of Yahweh who cannot be seen. There is a person of Yahweh that Moses can speak with face to face. There is a person of Yahweh that he cannot see. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. It is the Son who reveals the Father. Through the Son, 
we can safely have an interaction with, pray to God the Father. In the Son, we see God face to face, so to speak, and through him, we see the Father. But the New Testament says, no one has ever seen God, meaning God the Father, but the Son has been making him known. And that's, that's what you have here in Exodus chapter 3. You have, you have the Holy Trinity there. I mean, you, I, that's not a good sentence. You have the Trinity, you have the Son and the Holy Spirit revealing and interacting, revealing God and interacting with Moses face to face. And then you have the Father whose glory cannot be seen but can only be seen and interacted with in through the sun. And that's exactly what we would expect if we were reading the Old Testament on the basis of the New Testament, which we are. Okay, a couple more passages in, the, in uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Um, Numbers, Numbers chapter 6, this passage should be familiar to anyone uh, who attends a Lutheran divine service. It said, and beginning in verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. So the priests will bless the people of Israel this way. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall you put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So this is a liturgical action that the priests are commanded to perform and they are commanded to um, say these words and bless the people. And we've taken this over into the, the concluding benediction of the divine service. Um, and note, we're looking at 24, 25, and 26. The name of the Lord is repeated tw uh, uh, three times. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And then it says, this is how you will put my name upon the people of Israel. And this threefold repetition of the name Yahweh, um, I mean, in Christianity, we receive this connected and understand this connected with, well, it's like what Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew 28. It says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And notice it's not the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit. It is one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one divine essence, identity, that is um, that one name that is shared by the three persons. Okay, that's what you kind of and you kind of see that pattern here already in Numbers. There's a threefold repetition of the name of God, and that name in that threefold repetition is being put upon the people in a again a premonition of the way that the name of God is put upon us in holy baptism. Numbers chapter 11. 
The Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. I'm sorry, the verses I just read there are Numbers 11, 16 through 17. And God is saying, okay, we're going to choose 70 men of Israel, and they will be sort of your associates or your partners in ministry or your, um, they will help you bear the burden of your ministry. And God says, I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And then it says, it says, skipping to verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Uh, So the spirit, here we're talking about the Holy Spirit of God and The Holy Spirit was upon Moses so that he could lead the people. And now that Holy Spirit is being put upon the 70 elders of Israel. And by the way, this 70 thing comes back in the New Testament. I mean, actually it stays when Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin in the New Testament is basically the continuation of of this institution of these 70 elders of Israel. And Jesus also, in the Gospel of Luke, is recorded to have chosen not just 12, but also to have a kind of another layer of discipleship that was the 70. So for Jesus, there were the three, Peter, James, and John. The three were nested within the 12 apostles. Those 12 apostles were surrounded by a group that was the 70 or 72. That's a whole other thing. Was it 70 or 72? Um, The reason I bring that up is because then in the next two verses, I'm sorry, the next verse, uh, verse 26, it says, Now two men remained in the camp, so they didn't go out to Moses to receive the Spirit, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. So they didn't even go out to get it. The Spirit came while they were sitting on their front porch, found them, and uh, rested upon them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. So what happens here is that is, um, is 
God's putting his spirit upon all of these uh, 70 who will be leaders of Israel. Two of them don't go out. Two of the chosen ones who are chosen to receive the spirit don't actually go out to receive it. They receive it anyway. And then Moses says he wishes that all of God's people would have the spirit of God and would, he says, prophesy. This happens at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon first upon uh, uh, the disciples of Christ and then the disciples say you also be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So what Moses wanted to have happen actually happens and we participate in that Holy Spirit who calls and gathers and enlightens and sanctifies God's God's whole people. So, but this was already, there was already a premonition of this again in the, uh, in the Old Testament right here in Exodus. So, um, another passage getting into Numbers or continuing in Numbers, Numbers 22. Um, this is a long this is all kind of one story here in Numbers 22. I am not going to read the whole thing, but this is the famous story of Balaam, the pagan prophet who is hired by the pagan king to curse the people of Israel while they are in the wilderness, to speak a curse over them. And he's riding on his donkey in order to curse them. And the donkey is giving him a lot of trouble. Uh, it refuses to go forward. It's just being a stubborn donkey. At least that's what Balaam thinks. And he starts beating the donkey. And, um, and then in verse 31 of Numbers 22, what happens is Balaam's eyes are opened and he sees what the donkey has been seeing. This is, by the way, after the donkey talks to him. The, the God gives the donkey this momentary gift of being able to talk to Balaam. And Balaam and the donkey have this conversation. And then uh, in verse 31, Balaam's eyes are opened and he can see what the donkey could see. And that is that the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn... It says in the verses that follow was standing between Balaam who had come to curse the people of Israel and the people of Israel. He was there defending the people of Israel from the powers of darkness and from the demonic curses that Balaam was going to utter. And of course, the funny part of the story is that Balaam, who is, you know, regarded among the pagans as this wizard figure uh, is shown to be less, has had to have less spiritual insight than a donkey and to speak words that are less wise than those that a donkey speaks. And so the angel of the Lord is still there, as he said he would be, or as God said he would be, defending the people of Israel. His sword is drawn, meaning he is there to engage in spiritual warfare uh, and we see him doing that here because it's not just about 
Balaam saying nasty, insulting things about the people of Israel, but he was sent there to basically call down the power of the demons that uh, the, the pagan people here were worshiping, call down the power of those demons upon the people of Israel and the Son of God, the angel of the Lord, defends them. So you can read that whole story. You can read that whole story in Numbers 22 and following. But the, ver- the verses where the angel of the Lord appears uh, is 31 through 35. And f- they're following. Okay, we're going to do a couple verses in, verse, er, in the book of Deuteronomy. Then we will be done with the five books of Moses and we can move on from there. Um, And that will be the end of what we have to say for today. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In verse 4, beginning at verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a very famous, important verse for the people of Israel going forward. In fact, this this verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This verse becomes, for their worship, what is now for us the creed. In the creed, or in in, uh, the liturgy, we recite either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. In the worship of the synagogue, um, this verse was their creed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I think I'm going to give it a shot in Hebrew. It goes something like, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Um, And that first word, Shema, which means hear, this verse then becomes known as the Shema, this is the verse, this is the creed verse of the people of Israel. Um, just in, uh, the verse goes on, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Again, in that phrase, you have the Lord, the name the Lord, repeated three times, and St. Paul in the New Testament uh, we can, we'll go into this when we get to the New Testament, but just note this. St. Paul breaks up this verse like this. He says, we know that there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So St. Paul takes this creed, this creed statement from the Old Testament, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and says, here is how we understand it. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So St. Paul, in the New Testament, looks at this and sees in this a pattern. Uh, He sees in this, you know, in God he sees the Father, and in Lord he sees Jesus Christ. So he's saying that what Israel has been confessing all along the Lord our God, the Lord is one, 
we confess and say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay? So, um, that's something we'll have to look at more when we get into the New Testament, but that statement that God is one and that God is the Lord is hugely important for how the New Testament understands the mystery of the Trinity. And then just, a f I'm just going to, this last thing, last item I want to talk about takes place in um, Deuteronomy 12, 14, and 26. And I'm just going to, uh, um, you can look up these verses if you want, but it's Deuteronomy 12, 5, Deuteronomy 12, 11, Deuteronomy 14, 23, and Deuteronomy 26, 2. And there may be some other ones in there too, but these are the ones that I picked out. In all of these verses that I just quoted, it talks about God. So I'm just going to read to you. This is Deuteronomy 12:5. It says, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. Okay? All of these verses that I just quoted talk about God making his name dwell in some place. Make his name, a place that God will choose to make his name dwell and to make it his habitation. And this, of course, is referring to, in the first place, the tabernacle that God gave the specific instructions to the children of Israel to uh, construct so that he might dwell with them. And all of these instructions that in the verses that I've quoted have to do with worship at this place where God causes his name to dwell, um, which, is, which is to say the place that God causes his identity, his being to, to rest and to manifest in the midst of the people of Israel. And this is saying, this is talking about the tabernacle and the temple. And um, this causing his name to dwell in that place um, is, well, in its Old Testament context, I mean, this is the, where the glory cloud and rests in the tabernacle, where the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. So there is a Trinitarian aspect to that. Also, this idea of God causing his name to dwell and to fill up a place with his name connects very easily with Pentecost. God fulfills this most um, emphatically at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit, it says, enters into the room where the church is gathered, fills the room that is to say, fills the place where they are gathered, meaning he fills them, 
meaning the church, the body of, of the faithful believers in Christ, the body of Christ, filled with his spirit, is how this, how this gets fulfilled in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he's talking about the tabernacle. In the New Testament, we, the body of Christ, are the tabernacle that is filled with his spirit. Okay? So there is, there is, a, there is a Trinitarian fulfillment of this. And what we have to remember, of course, is that the fulfillment is actually the plan all along, if you can put it that way. That it's not that God decided to build a tabernacle and then said, "Yeah, I don't like that idea. I'm going to build, I'm going to build a temple out of human, out of human beings, okay, living stones," as Paul talks about it, um, and Peter talks about that too. Uh, um, it's not that God. It's not that the church is like. It's not that the tabernacle is Plan A and then it didn't work, so God did Plan B, which is you know, Christian believers and the faithful and the church. It's rather that God intended all along to fill humanity with his spirit and that humanity that had been filled up with his spirit would be joined to his son through, the, through his incarnation and flesh so that we would be his body and he would be our head. That was the idea all along. If you can put it that way, like it's an idea, uh, it is that in the Old Testament, you see a shadow, you see a premonition, you see a, an image beforehand of what God is intending to do. Okay? So the fulfillment is in the New Testament. The fulfillment is the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit filling the church, joining us to the Son, uh, making us the body of Christ, uh, presenting us to God the Father. That's the plan. The premonition is in the Old Testament. The fulfillment was the goal all along. Okay, so um, I, I know that this probably was not as, this was a little different than um, usual in that I'm just recording some of my commentary on these, on these passages and on these verses um, because the actual Bible study and the discussion we had there was, was somehow lost in the recording process. So, uh, with that, we are done with the five books of Moses. And um, we'll be moving on to Joshua and Judges next time. So, if you've listened this far, thank you very much. God bless. Thank you for listening. Join us live and in person Friday mornings at 8 a.m. at St. James Lutheran Church for Bible study. Join us for divine service on Sunday mornings, 8.30 a.m. at St. James Lutheran in Northrop or at Zion Lutheran at 10 a.m. in rural Fairmont. Check out our website at sjlnorthrop.com. Find us on Facebook at St. James Lutheran Northrop. Thanks again. God's peace.